Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of my podcast, Is Breakfast Included? How are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, today, I have a great conversation with my good buddy, Ted Levin. Now, Ted fronts a trio called Sweet Crooner, and they do hits from the 50s and early 60s. He also does this solo every Friday night here at the Omni Hotel in Dallas. I had a great conversation about what brought him here to Dallas, his heavy metal days, being in a 90s alternative rock band with a hit in one of the biggest markets in radio. That's right, Dallas, Texas. And what it was like auditioning for Marilyn Manson. We had a lot of fun. It was great catching up. Ted's a great guy, and he's a very dear friend. So I'm going to let you check this out. (laughs) Introduce yourself. Who am I? God, who am I? Um, I'm Ted Levin. Uh, I've been in Texas since 1988, where I bumped into you, I think, a year later, right? 89. Yeah. I think I tracked it back to 89. Um, Came out to go to school here at North Texas. Grew up um, a little outside of Manhattan in the Hudson River Valley. And knew I wanted to do music for the rest of my life. Knew this was... Why Texas? One of, yeah, North Texas was just one of the best schools for that. And I uh, got here, realized there was no <laughs> rock department. <laughs> Where's the heavy metal room, man? <laughs> um, you know, I eventually got out in 94 with a social work degree that's done me nothing <laughs> but uh, collect dust. And, uh, you know, I did some sales jobs for a while. That's how we, <laughs> we worked at a <laughs> telemarketing at a firm. Telemarketing together, that's right. And uh, turned thirty. I literally, you worked at PC, right? Yeah. I literally turned thirty, walked in my job at PC, and said, "I quit." You know, and uh, never really worked again. I mean, whatever that means. Did odd stuff, taught guitar lessons, worked in a pawn shop, uh, waited tables, bartended. All to, to kind of focus on yeah. music. I wanted to have the, the freedom to go whatever direction music took me. And, uh, and you know. How old were you when you moved here? 88, 18. Uh, 18? Yeah. Was it a culture shock for you? Absolutely, man. I mean. Did you imagine Texas being cowboy hats? And- What's that? Is it chicken? <laughs> Is it steak? Is it man? Is it beast? Um, yeah, I figured Texas was the old West and, you know, tumbleweeds be passing by wherever you went. Everyone had a six shooter. <laughs> Not too far from the truth. Not too far. <laughs> uh, and Denton had a pretty cool music scene at the it time. Did. I mean, we gosh. were coming out of the eighties into the nineties. Oh and- yeah. I mean, you were there like 88, you had like 10 hands, you yeah. know, big bands. And then you had bands breaking that we got to watch yeah. break like, uh, Tripping Daisy, you know, I had Brutal class, juice. classes with those guys, yeah. Brutal Juice, um, you know, and then watching Bowling for Soup break. Yeah. Yeah. Out of, out of Denton. Yeah. Out of that scene. Tripping Daisy were the big rock stars, though, yeah. to us. I had Wes Berggren, you know, may he rest in peace, uh, in a class in, gosh, must have been 91, and he had this beautiful, long, blonde hair. And he was tan, you know, he just looked like this model. And he would sit in front of me in men's choir and I'd be like trying to grow, grow my hair out. <laughs> God, how do I get that hair? You know, I'm just going to snip some of it off and glue it on. But 
you know, so he, uh, you know, Trip and Daisy started rehearsing at uh, one of the dorms there at North Texas. Yeah. How it all started, Rick's place in Denton. That was the place. I remember him telling me one of their first tours yeah. was in an Astro van. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. It was years and years ago. Yeah. He could have been pulling my leg, but I it. um so did you immediately come in and start a band? Did you kind of feel it out or were yeah, you I mean I was so metal back then, you know, that was my my whole thing so um yeah i tried doing metal bands it was so funny the metal scene here in the late 80s was still alive and well into the early 90s yeah so i donned the spandex and the boots and i had a hair metal band called charlemagne and we yeah. did the basement and city limits and all that stuff your singer was his name was Rue. Rue. <laughs> Which was uh, when I heard of Charlemagne, I thought they must be good. He's got a cool name. He was—he's a great guy. We still keep in touch. But you know, we did shows with uh, Dangerous Toys and you know all these iconic Dallas metal bands. So I was part of that whole—the end of that scene, which was really kind of fun. Um, Not that it ended, but just to be part of it in some way. And then I heard Allison Chains, and I was like, wow that's where things are going and uh that's what songwriting is about you know it's still hard-edged but there's melody and there's harmony and there's flat fives and different um you know approaches to songwriting that wasn't there for me in metal and i was hooked and then soundgarden you know and then nirvana and all those bands uh really showed me a whole new kind of outlook to music and for the first time i think 93 94 i started seriously writing at least rewriting actually writing good good songs yeah and uh 94 i think because of you and your buddy Derek taylor and corsicana i went down <laughs> to the canna and i recorded my first song and uh it was for me it was the start of you know 25 30 year journey yeah yeah as a songwriter yeah and during that time you held a pretty interesting job too right we did <laughs> both of us for a little bit yeah i uh my last couple of years of college i <laughs> played guitar and sang in the men's room of a strip club called caligula and we're just uh, sitting there and sing all night and make tips and sell cigars and candy and all that and some interesting stories. Gene Simmons, I remember he came in there one yeah. time. I asked him, man, look, can I see your tongue? <laughs> and he, he kind of looked around and went, that's just for the chicks. <laughs> so that was funny. Uh, who else? You know, God, all kinds of Dallas Cowboys were coming in yeah. there. So that was an interesting gig. I remember Vinny Pazienza coming in there. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> the boxer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so during this time, you start your journey of, of what you're doing now yeah. uh, away from the metal scene. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I turn... Yeah, I mean, even before that, let me step back. Um, 97, I got an offer to play in this Denton rap metal band called Beef Jerky. And that was a, a lot of fun, man. It really was. You know, it was such a test as a guitar player to play with this amazing rhythm section, you know, Danny Handler, Eric Delagarde on bass. And to be lock, 
step with those kind of, you know, that, that level of musicianship, it really made me a good player. Danny Handler, if you missed a note, he would literally toss a drumstick at you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember when you got the gig, <laughs> Tommy Moore was yep. leaving the band. Exactly. And then you got the gig and we're like, Ted. They took a different <laughs> direction. And uh, it was funny because we started doing these shows with this little band out of Wichita Falls called Bowling for Soup. And uh, they come down here and start opening for us here in Denton, Rick's place. And a year later, they just won over our crowd and so many other folks down here. And they're just uh, blowing up. And come 2000, the singer, one of the guys, main guys in, in, uh, in Beef, says, look, I'm going to manage Bowling for Soup. I got him a record deal. Beef Jerky's done. And he said, to me, you should do your own band, man. You, your song, you've got some good songs. I've been giving him songs I've been doing with Derek. And he said, you should do your own band. You should front it. And uh, it should be on my label. <laughs> so I started Space Cadet in uh, 2000. Right on, man. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, was a nine-year journey and a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Cool. Yeah, cool. it was cool, man. It was my baby. And uh, I think most importantly, it was a vehicle for me as a songwriter. Um, it was a fertile time for me to just put all the pain into music and, and write and write and write. And I got some really good stuff out of it. And we, we did some great stuff. Um, I don't know. I think it peaked in probably 06 with uh, the second release, Debutante. We had a single, a cover of Betty Davis Eyes that was, you know, the number one requested song on the edge that year yeah. by a local artist. And for a month, you know, it was getting 20, 30 spins a week. And we're like, this is going to blow up. And when it didn't get the push it needed, a month later, they pulled it and we were you know, kind of back where we were, but uh, it was the coolest thing ever to get in your car, turn on the edge. And hear your song. And hear your song, your yeah. voice. It is unlike any other experience. Um, those were great days. We did some, some warp Tour gigs. We did some tours with uh, Bowling for Soup. Um, I think, for me, the, the best gig was this uh, opening for Ashley Simpson, had uh, was it? I don't know. Was it Jackson? What was it then? Uh, Smirnoff, Starplex. We'll call it Starplex. Starplex. <laughs> oh, Starplex to me. And being on that big stage where I'd seen Ozzy and you know, yeah, Alice and Slayer yeah. and <laughs> Pantera, and you're standing on that same stage, and you, for the first time, you hear what it sounds like to hear the music thumping through your chest. Yeah, the sound system yeah, like yeah. That. And playing in front of, you know, six, seven, eight thousand kids, little girls screaming for Ashley Simpson. But uh, nevertheless, it was just, I think, the highlight for me live. Yeah. It's an amazing experience. Just playing live music is such a trip. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was over by 09. I kind of twiddled my thumbs for a couple of years. I did some cover bands. I did a, a grunge cover band that was kind of fun. And, uh, you know, I eventually said, well, I got to keep working, got to keep playing. And I started 
this thing called Sweet Crooner, which was just kind of to me a, a tribute to the 50s, yeah, you know, early 60s. And I wanted to recreate my love of that, which for me growing up, you know, at seven, Elvis was what I wanted to be. I stand in front of a mirror with a comb and singing Hound Dog and all that. That was my first real uh, teen idol Uh love. And uh, I wanted to kind of go back there. So I started doing that and I wanted to put a spin on it where I could do a solo gig, but have a much fuller sound. I wanted to be different than the guy with a guitar playing Kumbaya sitting on a stool. So... I figured, well, I'm, how can I add some stuff? So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to teach myself how to play harmonica. Not just Bob Dylan, Neil Young harmonica, yeah. but some real heart playing. And uh, it was tough, but I finally figured out how to play a guitar and be able to solo on harp with a rack on my neck. Uh-huh. So all of a sudden I had you know, a solo instrument with the guitar. And I was like, well, how can I add a beat to it? How can I add some percussion and I said, well, I could wear these little tambourines on my feet. So I started doing that, and all of a sudden I had this beat going. And I said, well, how can I add the, the beauties of all those 50s, early 60s harmonies? And uh, I don't want to have to get another guy in the group and have to pay him. So I started <laughs> I'm doing using, so well on my own. <laughs> yeah, this is going so good so far. Um, but I need a, a Garfunkel to my, my Paul Simon. Yeah. So I started using a a harmonizer and you know doing it organically where it wasn't yeah. so robotic sounding so all of a sudden i had a solo act that had these different elements dynamics that a lot of guys didn't have that kind of recreated that 50s sound but gave you a fuller you know more f- band live band sound and then from there i said well what else can i do so i got a great stand up bass player to play with me eventually got a another guitar player uh my good buddy jason jones from the feds who's just f- fantastic another band from the fro years right? yeah exactly they you know one of my favorite all-time dallas bands um, so, good. so it's great to be playing with him and uh you know we've been doing it nine years now mm-hmm. i think eight nine years and you know, it's 150 shows a year, 180 shows a year. Even with COVID, I still did 80 shows 2020. Wow. Um, I've been lucky. I've been at the Omni Hotel every weekend for nine years in March. And uh, that's enabled me to kind of pay the bills and take what gigs I want. And been with a great agency for six years called the 13th Floor. And uh, it's fun, man. I love what I do. And, you know, with COVID, as you know, we were talking earlier, we were all so just hit hard, distraught. What do we do now? Sitting on our hands. I was out of work for three months. Omni shut down. Um, Nothing coming from the agency. So I started writing again for the first time since Space Cadet split. And uh, that was such a cleansing experience for me, you know, to take pride in... uh, being a songwriter again and i totally went from you know the pop hard pop alt rock of space cadet and went back to my my first love of metal (laughs) and i was like i'm gonna write something really heavy and i dropped the guitars down to c and b and and drop a on a a six string 
And I uh, was like, I'm going to write a rock opera. And I made it about COVID. And I wrote this 17-minute long rock opera comparing COVID to Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death, which is about you know, tuberculosis in yeah. the 1850s in uh, you know, disease-ravaged Italy where the prince, Prince Prospero, locks himself with all his best buds in an abbey with all the food and booze. And <laughs> while everyone else around the country is dying, they're all partying. And then, of course, the angel of death shows up one night and in, inflicts them all and they all die. So I, I put that in a modern context with uh, COVID, but uh, not to get political, but I made <laughs> Prince Prospero our late president yeah. of uh, yesteryear and uh, made the White House the, the holdup Abbey uh-huh. and uh, kind of put it in that context and just wrote this massive 17-minute long piece called the called Red Death. And uh, Derek ma- mixed it for me. And uh, for me, as, as a songwriter, man, it was just so epic to write something of that magnitude. You yeah. know, it took me three months, you know, to engineer, track this thing. And uh, it's like four parts. I'll have to get it to you. Yeah. But yeah, it was something I was really proud of. I don't know what I'll ever do with it. But I kept writing after that. I've done some. Do you think you'll ever perform it with anyone? Man, that would be so much work. But uh, never say never. Yeah. You know, it would take a lot of work. Um, But I'm starting to write. I wrote a pop rock tune recently that Derek's going to mix for me here soon. And I'm really proud of that. It really reminds me of something from Space Cadet era. And uh, it's just for me, after going so long with not writing anything, not only to write some, you know, raging stoner metal, yeah, but to be able to write some pop songs too, it made me realize that it's still there, that I still have the ability. And, uh, you know, maybe that's where I'll end up licensing. Who knows? Yeah. We'll see. That's what, that was my next thing. Do you, do you ever think you'll start writing for other people? I, I would like to. I would like to, man. Yeah. I've even I did a soundtrack just for for Grins. Um that was fun. So I would I would like to get into it. We'll see uh you know what happens with COVID and all that. Would you be able to fit that in with the Sweet Crooner project? I think to do so. an original project. I think so. I mean, you know, I'm gonna clock in at 160 shows this year. Yeah. And man, I'm fifty-one. <laughs> Almost fifty-two. And it's, you know, people think playing music for a living is fun and it's easy and it's all laughs, um, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know that more than anybody. And it's taken a toll on me physically. You know, I've I've uh, recently kind of come to the conclusion that I have severe hearing loss. And uh, I, I knew I had something and I couldn't figure out what it was, saw specialists. And finally, I was working with a vocal coach, and he was like, well, hey, dummy, do you wear earplugs? And I said, oh, <laughs> earplugs. You know, I'm doing an acoustic gig. What do yeah. I need earplugs for? And I was wrong. I yeah. was wrong. I was warm in, in rock bands, um, but I didn't do it with Sweet Crooner. And all those frequencies, they're high-end frequencies, you know, acoustic guitar, tambourine, harmonica, they take a toll. And I developed this condition called temporary threshold shift where all of a sudden 
you know, loud noises take a toll and your your hearing is just muffled. Yeah. And it sucks. And I, I have to turn my head to the right when people talk to me. Really? This is the good ear. This one's very muffled. And, and 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 when I meet somebody new and I do it, they think I'm being rude, but right. I'm like talking to the good ear. <laughs> you gotta use one of those <laughs> old school yeah, little the, funnels. funnels. <laughs> yeah, <it's> funny. Yeah. <laughs> um so I wore started wearing the plugs and uh you know, it was uh, a learning curve. It's taken some getting used to, but it's it, you know the alternative is being Beethoven, and I'm not I'm not going out like that. <laughs> and I got to keep working, so you know I'm doing yeah. three to five shows a week. Still, still, yeah, yeah. And you, so you have a regular gig at the Omni Hotel. Yeah, I'm at the Dallas. Omni every Friday and Saturday night, and then I do at least one or two shows a month with the trio, and it's a great. The trio is so much fun because not only am I, you know, playing guitar, harmonica, singing, you know, I got these tambourines on my feet, but my upright bass player, who's just a phenomenal player, Mark Defiba, not only just slays it on the upright, but the whole time he's playing, he's playing a kick drum <laughs> behind him with both feet. It's a double bass pedal that he plays with his heels. He stands on these wood blocks. So the whole time we've got a downbeat, you know, and then the hats or the yeah. tambourines with the upbeat doots, 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 the whole time. So it, it creates this kind of faux drummer, this kind of fake drum machine. And uh, it's kind of fun. And, you know, you don't have that crack of the snare and the cymbals killing you. Yeah. And we get a lot of gigs where you can't get a drummer into with noise yeah. ordinances and stuff like that. So, And it's Plus a cool you dynamic. You don't deal with the drummer. Right, the attitude no, of the drummer. Noodling. No noodling. <laughs> um, so it's it's a fun gig, man. I really I love playing fifties music and uh, just going back there to the stuff you I grew up with. But um, we'll see where I go with the songwriting. It, it's just for me. I'm so happy that I thought it was gone. I thought the window had closed. There were no more muses in the world, and and then I. Met my wife, and uh, you know, know, I was inspired again to write. It really just kind of came out of nowhere. Well, your wife's a writer. Did that? Did that? Like, I think that's very you possible. Know? You know, to to be in a relationship with another creative is yeah. is just so amazing and fulfilling. And to watch her, you know, come up with this stuff, it definitely inspired me to at least try again. And it it bore fruit you know i was yeah. able to kind of get back into it it's slow you know it's not poor anatomy or anything but uh you know she has, was it, ever, has it ever just poured out of you like back yeah. in your younger days did it just i think so man i mean you know there was a time in space kid i was living in a storage shed you know sleeping on a futon mm. and you know it was like wow i'm virtually homeless and when you're and that kind of place in your life it man the songs come yeah the songs come yeah. and the experiences the relationships they all kind of uh wind up as songs and i've always approached songwriting what i call humming and strumming you know yeah. just picking up a guitar and just first thing that comes out of your mouth you just kind of hum it yeah. and strum it and uh, if you get one little you know, line that's cool. One little melody that's cool. You have something, yeah, and yeah. you just keep adding on and, and building. 
Well, I remember a guy, what what you just said reminded me, I think about this a lot, uh, when we were at our previous place of employment, a guy Mm -hmm. came in and was talking to me. The previous place where they wore very little clothes. (laughs) The shoe models. The shoe models. (laughs) Uh, And he, I remember him telling me, like, is this all you do? And I go, no, I have have a real job and I have a band. And he's like, well, I wish you luck because it doesn't get any more humble than this. But what you just told me, it doesn't get any more humble Ah, than what you went through. So to, to, so I see where you are. Like, I think people, I just talked to a friend of mine. He said, people, the people define success differently. Sure. Like, sure. You'd want more, but you're happy doing what you're doing. Man, I've never been as happy as I've been in the last three years. Um, I'm in the greatest relationship of my life and and the last one, Yeah, you know, and, uh, we got married in June and it was the best day of my life. And I just feel more positive about life than I ever have and about where I'm going with music. And, uh, it's, it's thanks to her. It really is. Well, I've known you a long time, man. And I've never seen you like, I've never, I've never seen you, uh, like naysaying the day. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Like you get up and you're like, all right, man, I'm going to make the best of today. And yeah, as long as I've I known try. you. I you try, know? man. I, I mean, I've, I've gone through some dark periods, um, but a lot of good, a lot of good memories, a lot of good times. I mean, we were talking earlier, the GTI years. <laughs> Let's know. go back there. Yeah. You, right? you had an interesting, uh, oh, audition yeah. That's right. back in the nineties. That's right. So, and it, it kind of stems into the whole Caligula thing. You might remember every week we would have a uh, featured entertainer. Yeah, yeah. Who was a uh, adult film star. <laughs> and they would do their show three times a day. And they would sell Polaroid pictures to you know, get a picture with them. Well, uh, me being the men's room valet, I would go back to their dressing room and say, hey, you know, can I get a picture with you? I'll put it up in the bathroom. It'll help you. It'll help me. So I had this huge collection of uh, some pretty famous <laughs> adult stars. And uh, this buddy, well, heck, it was you who told me about, the, the, that's right, I forgot, um, said, man, The Observer is uh, has an ad for Marilyn Manson's looking for a guitar player. So I sent in the tunes I had done with Derek at the time. Um Trying cassette. I mean, that's how long yeah. ago we're talking about. <laughs> I sent my cassette. Oh my god! And uh, I made a collage of all those Polaroids, <laughs> and some of them were fairly risque. And uh, I knew Manson would dig that. And sure enough, I got this uh, audition opportunity. I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. Do you remember the story about your collage of Polaroids? Mm. You went. You did it because you were working at the school. Yeah. And oh you, my gosh, that's and right. You, and you did this on the Xerox machine, right. and you just got the flyer. Oh my God. Him, and you left all the pictures. Oh, <laughs> And yes. you came to work, and you're like, uh, I think I messed up. Yeah, incriminated myself. That's funny. I had forgotten about that. Anyway, continue. But, yeah, so I got the audition, went out with my buddy uh, Raymond Lee Honeycutt, and uh, we... Went to Trent Reznor's studio on Magazine Street, which is an old mortuary. You yeah. literally walk up to it, and there's gargoyles and a little <laughs> that little sliding thing where someone comes to the yeah. window. What's the password? And uh, we went in there, and yeah, I was one of like thirteen cats. And you know, you went into this little dark room, 
where there's a spotlight, you walk out in the middle and your eyes adjust and you see that Manson and Reznor and all those other guys in Manson were sitting on a couch right in front of you. And I, I got to play a couple of songs and Ray was like, man, you got to wear this, this voodoo chicken foot <laughs> necklace. Manson will love it. So I wear this necklace and I'm rocking out. I got the long hair and the necklace starts spinning and it gets caught in my hair while I'm trying to play. So I start trying to shake it out and, you know, play and not miss a beat. And I look over and they're all laughing at me. <laughs> I'm like, Ray, you screwed me, man. He made you wear his leather pants. Yeah, I wore leather pants <laughs> and pentagrams on the side yeah. and painted my nails and all that. And I remember, I think what killed it for me at that audition was Manson said, you know, I played a couple songs, said, well, can you play Sweet Dreams for us? Yeah. And I didn't know it. You know, I didn't know his big hit song. I wasn't a fan. I'd learned the songs their manager had told me to learn. I didn't I didn't do my homework. And I said, Well, you know, I don't really know that one. And he was visually, you know, visibly uh disappointed in me. <laughs> so I didn't get the gig. But um years later it was funny. I got to hang out with Billy Corrigan for an evening. My uh girlfriend at the time, her family owned this wrestling company called TNA. Yeah. Total nonstop. TNA. And uh, Billy Corrigan bought into them as their entertainment director. And he was out here touring with Manson. So we got to hang out with him. And uh, we took him to, you know, a Deep Ellum bar and just shot the shit for uh, a couple hours. And it was, that was an amazing, you know, to talk to Billy Corrigan about, well, how did you, how'd you track Siamese Dream? And what guitars did you use? What, <laughs> you know, Marshalls and a, a muff, muff pedal, you know, distortion. I was like, wow, that's it. But um, I told him that Manson story and he was like, that's that's funny. You know, I'll see if on the tour, you know, we can get you guys reconnected. And I was like, that would be great. But it didn't happen. But um, he, he was really interesting to me, just a super intelligent guy. And, you know, just I was such a huge fan. So that was that was humbling. Um, but yeah, man, some great, some great. Water under my bridge. Right on. I, I, the bridge I, is a little rusty uh, <laughs> as of late, but do you uh do you kind of in re in light of recent allegations, you kind of think you dodged a bullet with that? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's crazy. You know, um I, I don't regret not getting that gig. I might have opened doors, but I don't think I would have become the songwriter that I yeah. became. And uh, to me, that's so much more important to leave behind a legacy, a body of work um, is, is so much more important to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. even if it's not, you know, I still have the glow CD yeah, and the glow record, right? <laughs> glow record. Ray gun. Um, man, is there anything else you want to talk about um, as far as, you know, just uh, I want to plug myself. Yeah. Not literally, but, um, <laughs> Sometimes, uh, you know, Ted Levin YouTube is all the Space Cadet records are all on there. Um, my recent stuff is on there. Um, also, my wife's writing is amazing. She's uh, a published writer with Harlequin. She's self-published. Uh, Cynthia St. Aubin dot com. Uh, St. Aubin is A-U-B-I-N. It's a patron saint of protection from pirates. You probably didn't know that. No. But, uh, she's amazingly brilliant and hysterical and just a genius writer. So, uh, 
That's it. You can find me every weekend at the Omni Hotel, doing the very best in the 1950s and early 1960s. Thank you. Thank you very much. For the Rasks, the best on wax. That's right. <laughs> said that a few times, too. Um, you know, and uh, Sweet Crooner is still playing around town. So check us out on you know, Facebook and Instagram for dates. Right on, man. And uh, thanks for having me on, man. It's really good to see thanks you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for doing this. You look good. Uh-huh. I got to say, do you remember the fake hunk? <laughs> Like I, I can't let this go without bringing the fake hunk up. When I first met Bernie, our, our mutual friend Derek Taylor said, you got to meet my friend Bernie Guerra, the fake hunk. I'm like, why do you call him the fake hunk? He's like, well, he's, he's like a hunk without all, all the other qualities. <laughs> I, told, I told that story. Uh, I do this with a friend of mine uh, named Lisa Letterman. Yeah. And I think I told her that story, the fake hunk, because I was telling her, I'm going to talk to my friend Derek and I want to bring him in on this. And I said, he used to refer to me as the fake hunk. That's so And she's funny. like, what the hell? And I was like, yeah, he said I had all the qualities of a hunk except the hunk part. <laughs> He's wrong, man. You got them all. You got them all. Uh, well, thanks, man. You got it. Thank you, brother. It's been good visiting with you. You too, man. All right. Right on. Ted Levin, sweet crooner himself. Like he said, you can find him on Ted Levin YouTube. He's got a lot of great material on there. Sweet crooner stuff, solo stuff, old stuff, new stuff. The new stuff is really cool. You can find him on Instagram at Sweet Crooner. Find out what he's up to, dates, appearances, all that stuff. Anyway, all right, guys, I'm done. Have a great day. I will talk to you next week. 